Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. This is the first in a series of conversations I'll have with my guests on the subject of uh, minerals, metals, and climate change. My first guest is Samira Sandhu. Samira is the Global Head of Research at Egon Sanders Mining and Metals Practice. She works closely with the industry clients to solve their leadership needs at the board and C-suite levels. She brings over 10 years of sector specialization gained at both strategy and talent consulting firms in global roles. At the moment, she's based in New Delhi in India. Samira, welcome to the Sheila Khan Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila, for this opportunity. I'm very honored and hopefully we can shed some light uh, for our audience on climate change, mining and metals, uh, what the relationship is and other aspects around that. That's wonderful. So let's, let's just sort of start with the basics. In a nutshell, mm-hmm. what do we know about the relationship between mining and climate change? Um, at least 10% of global carbon emissions today can be attributed to the mining and metals industry. Um, mine materials are the starting point in the supply chain for much of the global economy. This includes, um, first and foremost, mine coal supply, which is the most polluting energy source, not only in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide it produces per unit of energy, but also the amount of local air pollution it creates. Just fugitive methane emissions alone from coal mining and handling activities account for 2% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Coal is also used to generate one third of the world's energy supply today. Then we have um, the mining and metals industry at large, um, which is one of the biggest industrial emitters of carbon emissions today, accounting for roughly about 8% of global emissions, uh, particularly from iron ore and steel, which have a 7% share of global emissions, and followed by non-ferrous metals like aluminium, um, which have roughly about a 1% share of global emissions. Coal is notably used as a reducing agent in iron, making for 70% of the world's steel. And steel is the world's most important engineering and construction material, um, with applications in almost every aspect of our lives, from cars, appliances, hospital equipment, industrial machinery, shipping, you name it. So it's not going anywhere. Um, On the other hand, mining companies also produce the commodities that are essential for um, the global green energy transition commodities like copper, nickel, lithium, so on. Last but not least, mining can also be very damaging to forests and biodiversity. Although might I add here that most deforestation in fact comes from agriculture. Uh, An analysis by the World Bank suggests that 44% of all operational mines lie in forests and a 2012 assessment found that mining activities have driven 7% of global deforestation. This is worrying because the Earth's biosphere comprises a very intricate ecosystem and every form of life contributes to the delicate balance we have for stable climatic conditions that sustain life. Any hand, big or small, in disrupting this fine balance must be monitored and managed very carefully. So the industry, in a nutshell, in a nutshell produces materials that both support the green energy transition as well as commodities that do not. At the same time, regardless of the mine material, we cannot lose sight of the industry's impact on the broader ecosystem. Hmm. So uh, this is very helpful because what you've done is provided a broad context and and you've positioned mining both uh, in the space in which it is integral to our lives 
including uh, from construction to equipment in the health sector and many other, but also you have placed it in the position in which mining and its carbon footprint is also driving climate change and damaging yeah. forests uh, as well as uh, other natural ecosystems. But when we think of mining, Samira, we, we are thinking really of the upstream, which is uh, the extraction and the production of concentrates, as well as the uh, smelting of uh, mineral substances. But of course, mining progresses further downstream mm -hmm. uh, in the industrialization activities. And I, I wondered whether you could comment on how, when we think of mining and climate change, we, we view those downstream activities. A uh, very important question, Sheila, and I think this is something that the industry at large is struggling to wrap their heads around as well. Um, we know that uh, scope one and scope two emissions, uh, and that's been quite the topic uh, in terms of setting targets in 2020 and 2021. Um, scope one and scope two emissions are directly generated or indirectly generated by core activities, as you say. Uh, the extraction, smelting and refining of mine or transportation and handling of materials, um, as well as purchase power consumption, which is a scope two aspect. Now, with regards to scope one and two emissions, mining companies have actually been measuring the environmental impact for years using a method called life cycle assessment from cradle to gate or grave. Um, so they measure all sorts of things like global warming potential, freshwater consumption, land use impacts, and in fact, many companies are also well on their way to decarbonizing operations. So for example, Rio Tinto's um, managed operations currently run on 76% renewable energy. Uh, and then also we're seeing increasing scrutiny around ESG. So there's a lot more transparency in the reporting of these metrics. But scope three is where I would say there's a bit of a gray area. Uh, and scope three can, in fact, account for the lion's share of overall emissions for many mining companies, particularly if they supply raw materials for steel making, for example. Um, before we get into this point very quickly, scope three are the indirect carbon emissions calculated along the value chain with mining at the very start and end use consumers at the very end. So scope three includes both upstream emissions, which are the emissions intensity of mining suppliers and also downstream emissions, which um, your question focuses on related to emissions intensity of mining customers. We certainly cannot afford to ignore scope three, the steel industry, which as we already discussed, accounts for 7% of global emissions. Coking coal and iron ore are the main raw materials for making at least 70% of the world's crude steel and a little over 70% of crude steel is made in um, Asian economies, namely China, India, Japan, South Korea, where there's a heavy reliance on coal-fired power. Um, they argue that they have little control over the emissions intensity of their buyers, many of whom are state-run steel mills in China, for example. If host countries and end-use industries themselves don't have a clear pathway to carbon neutrality, it becomes that much harder for mining companies to commit and deliver on scope three targets. It becomes more difficult to calculate. It becomes more difficult to deliver on. What I find very interesting about uh, the scope three downstream emissions effort is that um, 
this is not directly in the control of these mining companies, even though in terms of the actual overall emissions um, output, it's the lion's share like we just talked about. To get their collaboration is absolutely important. Um, so no company can achieve this in isolation and partnerships will be absolutely um, critical. Yes. Uh, when I listen to you, I'm reminded that, of course, uh, when we say mining, it's fairly simplistic. Uh, most of us think of mining as the physical space. But of course, mining is also uh, an industry value chain with uh, different players. And, and, and the, the, the flaw here is that uh, the public generally thinks of uh, the big mining companies as the entirety of mining. But as, as you elaborate, we start to see that there are other even more important players in the space of climate change. And, and the, the Far East, as you rightly said, particularly uh, Japan, where historically uh, they have been the center basically for, for uh, iron ore and, and steel processing. And then of course, China, we forget this, that on the, on the East, uh, we have the people that actually process the uh, raw material. And then as you move westwards, uh, Africa, Latin America, and uh, parts of Central Asia and, and Australia, then you have the producers. And, and, and bringing these uh, interested parties uh, mm -hmm. and, 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 and having them take accountability for the various uh, levels of emissions, I think is, is quite challenging. And, and it remains to be seen how despite the targets by Rio, Glencoe and others, uh, you know, the world responds to uh, the contribution by uh, mining companies. But, you know, scientists suggest that changing the products we use, uh, for instance, and moving to electric cars will help uh, reduce the consumption of fossil fuels and therefore carbon emissions. But I always wonder, in doing so, are we not just substituting carbon emissions for another potentially harmful, if unknown, uh, outcome by moving from fossil fuels to more mineral intensive uh, energy sources? Great question. Um, let's talk about EVs in a little bit more detail because I think uh, there's a lot of debate around the, the carbon emissions related to EVs in particular. They are in fact making most of the headlines in terms of the green energy transition, especially from a public perspective. Uh, so to your point on substituting carbon emissions for another or maybe another potentially harmful unknown, yes, there's a lot of research out there on for example, the life cycle emissions of EVs. Um, some of this research even argues that combustion engines, um, ICEs, the cars that we traditionally use on a day-to-day -day that um, use petrol or diesel to move, actually contribute less carbon emissions compared to EVs on a life cycle basis, so from cradle to grave. <clears throat> so what I have been thinking around um, in terms of this particular aspect is really the life cycle comparison between EVs and ICEs. And I'm just gonna 
use these abbreviations of these biopathy, um, we're looking at four areas in particular uh, when we compare electric vehicles and internal combustion engine cars. Uh, the first area that we would probably con consider is where the car is produced, and this is applicable to both types of cars, and their carbon intensity may be higher if produced in countries like China that are more reliant on coal-fired power. Uh, then the second area we would probably want to look at is how and where consumers are powering their cars. Um, EVs driven in China will probably have high indirect emissions thanks to coal-fired power, uh, versus EVs in, say, Sweden, where nearly 70% of power comes from low-carbon sources. And of course, we know all too well that ICEs, on the other hand, use fossil fuels um, to move and therefore directly release uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, and particulate matter into the atmosphere. The third aspect we could compare the two on is battery storage, again, a feature that exists in both types of cars. ICEs use um, lead-acid batteries, notably 95% of the world's lead supply comes from coal-reliant China. Uh, EVs use lithium-ion batteries, the most common of which uses nickel, manganese, and cobalt as uh, the cathode materials, and graphite as anode. Grapho graphite is the only anode material for EV batteries. China supplies 80% of the world's graphite. Um, the other major minerals, nickel, 80% of cathode material um, in current configurations is nickel. A lot of the world's nickel supply comes from Indonesia and the Philippines, where at least 90% of energy supply is from fossil fuels. Then there's another complex aspect related to nickel that maybe few pe fewer people know. Um, nickel sulfide deposits are the most economical to produce battery-grade nickel. Um, but these are in structural short supply. So the only alternative right now is nickel laterite deposits um, and the limonitic kind, which use the carbon intensive high pressure acid leaching process to produce battery grade nickel. This technology is relatively unproven and runs the risk of acid leaks. And that actually happened at the Gora nickel mine in New Caledonia in 2014, contaminating a local river. Lastly, coal-reliant China also dominates global lithium-ion battery capacity today, accounting for 77% of global capacity um, in 2020, although Europe is playing catch-up. The fourth area we'd look at in terms of a comparison between EVs and ICEs is end-of-life solutions for reuse and recycle. So lead-acid batteries, which have been around for ages today, are highly recyclable. Many companies achieve recycling rates of more than 90%, but the same cannot be said for EV storage batteries at this point in time. Um, so in some, yes, the green energy transition certainly means we will be using more minerals, especially as green energy also demands storage solutions. Um, but as far as emissions go, the overall intensity of green products like EVs is a bit of a mixed bag. At this early stage, a lot will depend on how much and how quickly the world shifts to renewable power sources. Um, these products may not have the problem of direct emissions like our ICE traditional cars do, but indirect emissions remain a challenge. Mm. I find what you're saying very interesting. Uh, you use the term mixed bag. And as mm -hmm. I was listening to you distinguish between uh, battery storage driven by uh, the mineral lithium versus graphite versus nickel. It suddenly occurs to me that it's, it's, 
as usual, the public narrative is a little departed from reality uh, because the, the way that one reads in the uh, press is that, you know, as long as we can store energy, uh, our climate change uh, solution is solved. But basically what you're saying is that we know certain aspects about uh, battery storage. We know that uh, the solution and the extent to which uh, we mitigate the risk of climate change and others is less known as you look into the specific substances. And, and, and that battery storage per se is not the be all. Would that be correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's definitely um, something that needs to be kept in mind. It's almost what you would call the hidden elements of um, the shift that we want to achieve. And there are many uh, sort of consequences if we don't monitor these hidden aspects as well all the various things that we need for this green energy transition, whether it's EVs, windmills, solar power panels, um, they all have different implications and we, we need to be cognizant of those. So not only is there a trade-off then between fossil fuels and uh, cleaner energy with the help of uh, minerals to facilitate uh, battery storage, but uh, there's also quite a bit of trade-off between the various types of minerals. And, and so really moving from fossil fuels to uh, other forms is, a, is, a, is, is not so much a solution, at least in my view, as it is a, a, a trade-off. But, but let's uh, move on because I, I think, uh, you know, when I think of, again about what one reads in the general uh, media, the notion of a greener economy that is uh, dependent on uh, moving from fossil fuels, I always think, given the type of solutions that we are pondering, again, battery storage, it, it, the, the notion of a greener economy seems to me to be something of a, uh, a misnomer. Uh, because uh, if you look at transition from fossil fuels to say windmills and, and uh, solar panels, we are not really looking at a greener existence. We, instead, I think we are looking at a more metallic existence in contrast to fossil fuels. Uh, is that uh, the right interpretation? Well, um, the answer is, not so straightforward. So I'll answer this in two parts, um, starting with a slightly philosophical viewpoint. Um, you know, if we try and seek a like for like parallel for carbon as the future adjunct to economy, then you are right in implying that green isn't quite the right equivalent and the future state may very well be called um, metallic economy or something like that. Uh, instead, the term green economy signifies hope that there won't be another carbon equivalent in the future. So looking at the big uh, picture, greener implies a biosphere that's thriving with life, um, a biosphere that can absorb carbon, not be trapped and suffocated by it. Uh, and the earth has this incredible ability to heal and regenerate, provided we as human beings don't stretch it beyond planetary boundaries. Um, a greener economy is therefore the antithesis, if you will, of the carbon economy. 
Uh, moreover, the root cause of where we are today is not, not exactly carbon or any other material tomorrow, be it metals or something else. It's rather our own willful ignorance of the fact that uh, we belong to a global ecosystem where everything's interrelated. So when we disrupt any one element in the cycle of life, we put ourselves at risk of a catastrophic domino effect. Uh, in the last 50 years alone, we've generated excessive waste materials without giving thought to disposing these off in a sustainable way. Instead, we've simply released these materials into our global environment. So the accumulation of waste materials in our biosphere risks the very sources of nature that we depend on to survive. Um, so now I come to the second part of my answer where I totally agree that we are becoming more metallic. Um, by crossing the biological limit of any variable, we alter and damage our environment. So we overuse metals and other materials that go into renewable energy sources today. We may inadvertently be going down a similar path as we have done with coal and other fossil fuels. If we look at the global energy mix today, renewables account for roughly 11% of global energy consumption, and this is only expected to increase. Um, so Sheila, what we can do is really look at the two fastest growing sources of renewable energy to understand you know, what are the various components and metals that go into um, say wind turbines, solar panels, and also the biggest source of renewable energy today, hydro, hydropower, um, to understand you know, what we're actually um, using in terms of the hidden elements and what we need to be monitoring. Wow. So you, you, you started off by saying you'd be philosophical, which you were. <laughs> um, and, and in your statement, you, you used the phrase willful ignorance. And as I listened to you, I wondered, uh, taking my cue from you and being philosophical myself, whether it isn't really uh, uncontrolled human consumption and the notion that somehow humans must take precedence over other creatures when it comes to benefiting from uh, the environment in which we find ourselves, in which we compete with others. And that perhaps it is this uh, single-mindedness which has made humans focus first on themselves and not the environment and the totality of the ecosystem which has gotten us uh, this far, and that even as we seek solutions, these solutions are still, it seems to me, focused on maintaining our position on the planet Earth as, if you wish, the superior species. And, and there's no stepping back from that and rethinking, because what we are doing, from what I can see, is we are rethinking how we maintain our position. We are not rethinking uh, how we relate and adjust our position relative, as you said, to other species that need the space to migrate, to thrive, uh, to breed, etc. And And the second thing that uh, really hits me as you speak mm -hmm. uh, about uh, the impact of uh, the consumption and production of these metallic substances, including those that uh, emit radioactive materials is that there's a huge amount of unintended consequences the nature of which we don't yet know and 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 i would have thought that that alone would make us uh, stop and think so for what is worth that's my philosophical piece mm -hmm. uh, and 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 i was just wondering 
um, first whether you it resonates with you, Absolutely. but also, also mm-hmm. Samira, what will happen when the public? I mean, you are speaking here from position of privilege because you have knowledge and you are in the field. Not mm-hmm. every everybody understands. What do you think is going to happen, if anything at all, if the penny drops and the public suddenly realize that what is touted now as a solution is really an experiment? A uh, very, very uh, pertinent question, Sheila. Um, you know, and we, you know, bu- the public at large, I don't think um, fully grasps the fact that, um, you know, there's all of these different risks that go into the new solutions that are being developed. Um, you know, there is sort of a very naive understanding of where this green transition is taking us and what that means in terms of the ecosystem at large. Um, You know, everything's either painted black or white uh, and it's not quite either. It's many, many shades of gray. Um, And interestingly, metals, uh, for example, are very much part of a biosphere. They come from our earth, but chemically speaking, they are inorganic compounds. On the other hand, carbon, which is the evil element um, right now, is a primary component of all known life on Earth. It is, in fact, considered an organic compound, which is associated with all things good and all things green. Um, So what this does sort of highlight is really that there's a lot of misinformation, lack of awareness, um, many people only think of a uh, green economy in terms of single-use plastics. They think that, you know, if they, they stop using plastic products or something of that along those lines, then they're doing their bit. Um, on the other end of the spe- spectrum, like you said, even for someone like me with the privilege of knowledge um, who's actively following this trend, every day I become aware of a new perspective. Um, We are, after all, talking about the global economy and everything that exists on our planet. So this subject matter is enormous in its scope and the volume of information out there is overwhelming. And what makes it even more challenging is that we've not historically thought of ourselves as part of this um, ecosystem in a symbiotic uh, way of living. Um, We are the dominant species. We have sort of been single-minded about um, how, how we live um, and how we use all the resources at our disposal to uh, to our benefit and for our comforts. Um, so we cannot afford to think like that looking ahead. Um, it's still too early to say what the future holds, but we seem to be moving in the right direction, but perhaps much too slowly. Uh, the green energy transition is very much a work in progress and we are only just beginning to make some headway. Uh, Yet, if we don't parallelly make progress towards mitigating the associated risks to our forests, biodiversity, as well as preventing unmanageable accumulation of toxic wastes, then we are definitely setting ourselves up for failure. Hmm. I I agree with you that in the end, public knowledge and the groundswell of a uh, scientifically based advocacy work and policy work is the answer. I fear that we, we are moving in that direction, mm-hmm. uh, but we haven't gotten there. And, and we are beginning to prematurely suggest we have a solution when we haven't yet uh, answered all the questions. But perhaps uh, I will be proven wrong. You know, I can't help wondering 
you know, what, what possibly lies ahead? Is this experiment uh, going to succeed? And if it doesn't, what, what are we left with, do you think? Well, on the one hand, there's hope. Um, you know, when we talk about green economy and we talk about, you know, the fact that at the end of the day, people are coming together towards finding solutions. Um, we don't have all the answers. And I think to a large extent, people realize that um, changes need to be made, but they don't necessarily have the answer. They have some answers. Um, so there's a lot of uh, scrutiny around that. Uh, what is being prioritized though, is the fact that we are facing a climate emergency and we need to curb those carbon emissions. We need to maintain global warming below ideally 1.5 degrees. And so I think that would be a, probably a good note to close on because it's a reminder that the, the problem is bigger than any one person. So uh, once again, uh, Samira, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Y your comments and uh, responses have been very insightful. Thank you, Sheila. It's been a pleasure.